We have come as far as verse 5 in chapter 21. Let's, uh, let's read down. It begins by saying, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. It literally says there is no more sea. He's looking at it. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, There shall be no more death, neither sorrow, neither crying, neither shall there be any more pain. What a day. For the former things are passed away, the old creation. We come to verse 5, and we'll look at verses 5 to 8 this morning. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold... I make all things new. Verse 4, he said, The former things are passed away. I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And he that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters, all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So we come to this last exhortation before we have the description of the city. And John says, you know, I heard, and he said, this one seated upon the throne. And is he talking about chapter 20, verse 11, where we saw the Lord on the throne there, and heaven and earth fled away. Some say, well, he's talking about the Father. That's fine with me. Um, If he is, we haven't heard from the Father, it seems, since chapter 4, when he's on the throne there. Uh, Is he talking about the Son? Many believe that, because he's going to say here, I'm the Alpha and Omega, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 1, verse 11, I believe, Chapter 22, uh, in two places, he talks about being the Alpha and Omega, and is Jesus speaking? So is Jesus upon the throne? Um, We're told that the throne is the throne of God and of the Lamb. So, you know, some of us, in our hearts, we want this to be our Father on the throne. That's great. Some of us, Lord Jesus, that's you on the throne. That's great. Some of us think that's both of them on the throne, and you're listening to the Holy Spirit. So here is this picture. One seated upon the throne who is speaking, and the one upon the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. Behold there, 
is an inheritance, it's an imperative. He says, you have to consider this. It's not a suggestion, it's imperative. You have to think about this once and for all, is what it says. And what he wants them to think about and wants us to think about is, I make all things new. The idea is the old creation has passed away. Heaven and earth fled at the throne, chapter 20, verse 11. Four times now we hear that things are new in these first five verses. And it means new in nature, new in existence, new the, the you know, the, what it suggests throughout is this is a new creation. This is something that has never existed. This is something that is new and will always remain new. Peter tells us in his first epistle that our inheritance is incorruptible, undefiled, and fadeth not away. That this inheritance never grows old. There's no decay. Uh, There's no entropy. Uh, You know, there's none of those things that wear on the present creation. He's telling us, look, guys, this is all new and it will always be new. In fact, because in the ages to come, we'll still be learning of his grace, his mercy. It will be newer as time goes on. As we're able to apprehend, we'll see more and more and more of God's genius and our Father, what he's done for us. So this is new. And then he says, the one that's on the throne said unto me, John, write. And it's very interesting. Look. It's written, he's exhorted to write for us this morning, who are reading, who are listening. This is from our Father, and he sent it down through the centuries to us today. He said, John, write this down, this deal. I want this this written down. You know, he told us in the first chapter, blessed are those who read, blessed are those who hear, Blessed are those who keep the things written in this book. And this is, one, this is part of that. Chapter 1, I believe, verse 11, he tells them to write. Chapter 1, verse 19, he tells them to write. And then seven times we have to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. To the angel in the church of Sardis, write. To the angel in the church of Pergamos, write. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write. To the angel of the church... In Philadelphia, y'all, right. To the angel of the church, Laodicea, right. And he's, he's given this exhortation over and over to write. But this is the last time in the book of Revelation he's told to write. Very interesting. In, in chapter 10, he said, I was going to write, and I was told not to write. Don't record the thing that the seven thunders had to say, which we're about to find about, out about very soon. In verse, in chapter 14, uh, it says there, in verse 13, uh, it says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write. He's looking at the judgment. He's looking at these things that are coming. He's looking at the smoke of the torment ascending oh, forever and ever. He's looking at those gathered at Mount Zion. He's looking, and it's almost like he's overwhelmed, and the voice says to him, Hey, Right, You know, he's just standing with his quill in his hand, looking at everything. In chapter 19, the same thing happens. There, 
it's a marriage supper of the Lamb. He's hearing hallelujah, hallelujah. He's looking at what's happening. Heaven is exploding. And verse 9 it says, and he said unto me, write. He's being reminded. You know, this book, Revelation, differs from the other books in the scripture. Certainly they're all inspired. Certainly they're all inerrant. But as we look at the other books, you know, God is moving on the heart of Isaiah or on the heart of Matthew. But this is a book where Jesus himself is dictating and John is being his secretary and he's writing down the things that he sees and hears. And this seems to be another one of those places where he is so overwhelmed. A new heaven and a new earth. No more sea. New Jerusalem, that holy city coming down from heaven from God. And he sees it. And all of these things taking place. And then on top of all that, the one on the throne speaking to him saying, you need to constantly remember this and think about this. I'm making all things new. That's our future. That's our future. I make all things new. And then he's, John must be standing there with his quill like, and he says, earth to John. You know, he says, right. And he says, for, you'll see there, right, the reason, because these things are faithful and true. It's God the Father says, the, I want this written down because these things, he says here, are true and faithful. True is genuine. Faithful is dependable. And that's refreshing in this world because I don't know about you, but I hear a million voices around me and I don't know who's genuine anymore. I wish I know who to believe because they're all telling different stories. The idea here is <clears throat> what you're hearing and what you're seeing. John, write it down because these words, they're genuine. They're genuine. And faithful means they're dependable. You can bet your eternity. And it's like the father saying, these words are so important, John. They're not to be lost. They must be preserved. Write these things down. Pass them to Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia. You know, these things about their eternal destiny and what's ahead of them. Because, you know, we're a generation. There's never been a generation like ours before in the sense that, you know, there's nuclear proliferation. That's never taken before. No generation for 2,000 years has seen Israel in the land. But the media and the information were bombarded with. When I was a kid, I didn't even know what Afghanistan was. And now we're broken over it. We pray over it. We look at what's going on. The media so overwhelms us that the whole world has become a neighborhood. It isn't just like a community now where we know someone's shot or someone's raped or bad things are going on. The whole world's a bad neighborhood now. The whole world. Everywhere we look, it's insanity. The whole world is a bad neighborhood. We live on a noisy ball of dirt. And you have to look far and wide for any hope. But these words are genuine and they're dependable. And the one on the throne told John to write them down and pass them to us. 
What he's telling us is he makes all things new. Verse 6 says, And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. So he is to write. These words are genuine. They're dependable. And he said unto me, it is done. It's, it's, it's remarkable the way it's written because it isn't the phrase that's used many times in the New Testament, finished. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, said it is finished to telestai, paid in full. He didn't say it is done. He said it is finished. Redemption was finished. You and I ain't finished. Redemption is. This is something different. This, this word done means it has come to pass and it stands completed. It's, it's a father, we're going to read that, saying to his children, It's done. It's done. New heavens, new earth, eternal joy, glory, peace. It's done. It's done. From the time the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world into creation, God knew Adam and Eve would sin, so the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Substitutionary atonement introduced. Abel embracing Cain, turning away. Noah's flood. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses and the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, the 12 tribes, the wars in the land, King David, King Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the captivity, the return, the birth of Christ, God Almighty putting on human skin, walking in our midst, becoming our high priest who is touched with our infirmities. He understands hunger and thirst and weariness because he put on this spacesuit and walked in it. The one who is mocked and spit upon and crucified, who rises on the third day, who's ascended into heaven, returning all of that, the program of God, the rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation, the millennium, Now heaven and earth have fled away, and we finally come to what God wanted all along. And he says here, it's done. It's done. You know, it's almost like moms, you know what it's like on Christmas Eve. You get the kids to bed, and you're wrapping presents like 4 o'clock in the morning. And then when you wrap that last one, you sit down and say, it's done. It's done. You know, that's the, everything's wrapped here. Everything, you know, it, it's, it's finished and stands complete is the way Weist, who was the Greek scholar at Moody's Bible School, translated it. The idea is it's done. Not something's just finished. It's done and it stands completed. This is what's been in his heart all along. It's done. And he says he can say that. And that these words are genuine and dependable. He says, because I am the Alpha and Omega. 
that it's emphatic there. I. When you read in the Greek, it has two eyes. I. I'm the Alpha and Omega. I. I'm going to give to the one who's thirsty. God puts the emphasis on himself and he says, he says, look, trust me. This is done. This is what it's going to be. A new heavens and the earth. I know because I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I was there before it all. I'll be there at the end of it all. I'm the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega, he controlled it all from, from Eden. He stands outside of history. Beginning and the end, he stands outside of time. And he says, trust this. It's done. The scene. Put it before your heart. You have to think about these things. It's done wonderfully. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And then I, emphatic again, will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Fountain of the water of life, similar in chapter 22, a very unique structure there, the fountain of the water of life, to drink freely. Same expression in 2217, it's gratis. Drink gratuitously, drink undeservedly. The idea is you can drink freely. It has, you don't earn it, you don't deserve it, you'll never be worthy of it. Drink. You know, and it's an interesting picture because there are, are many that say, and I read, they compare this to John chapter 4 when he says to the woman of the well, anyone who comes to me, I'll give him rivers of living water. You'll never thirst again. Some compare it to John chapter 7 where he says the same thing, that he would give the Holy Spirit like, be like rivers of living water from his inmost being. Um, some compare it to Isaiah, you know, Woe, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. He who hath no money, come and buy and drink. And, and they draw a picture. But some of the Puritans say, no, no, no. That was God inviting us to drink of the fountain of grace. That's something he says to the lost. There are no more lost in this picture. The old heavens and the earth have passed away. There are only the redeemed here that are being beckoned to come and I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. The idea is when we're saved, we drink at the fountain of grace. When we're in heaven, we drink at the fountain of glory. It says in the ages to come, we'll be learning of his power and his grace and his glory. The idea is he will always be Infinite, and we will always be finite. We will always be being conformed into his image and not arriving. Our inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, fadeth not away. It never gets old. In fact, it gets newer and newer. The more we apprehend, the more we grow. And the more we drink there, the greater our thirst becomes. And he puts this in front of us to say it's going to keep flowing and keep flowing and keep flowing. And anyone who thirsts, I, me, I'm the one. I'm going to give to him of the water of life freely, unmerited to drink. 
And in verse 7 he says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things. Your translation might say these things, but it's talking about the same things. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. Make all things new, he had said. And I will be his God. He shall be my son. There's a promise here to the overcomers um, that we will inherit all things. Interesting, uh, D.L. Moody, after the fire in Chicago, the great Chicago fire, was standing outside of his home, which had burned to the ground. And someone came up and said, Mr. Moody, we're, we feel so bad, we're praying for it. And he said, well, why is that? And he said, he said, they said, well, Mr. Moody, you've lost everything. And he said, no, I haven't lost anything. He said, what are you talking about? They're sitting there smoking right in front of us. And he opened his Bible to Revelation 21, verse 7. And he read, he that overcometh shall inherit all things. He said, I've lost nothing. I've lost nothing. Boy, we want to live that way, don't we? What a challenge for us. You know, again, what a gift COVID's been because it's made us see how frayed the edges are, how threadbare our society and our culture is. It's made us realize all the things we thought were important are not really that important. Life is important. And we've realized again, future, our future with Christ is important. Forgiveness is important. The Word of God is important. The Holy Spirit is important. Heaven is, that was all there when things were quote-unquote normal. And those things never change. They're still there. So he says, he that overcometh. Now it's interesting. This is the, la- this is the eighth and last promise to the overcomer. Again, when you read through the letters to the seven churches, each one ends saying, he that overcometh will I give to drink, you know, eat of the, the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. You go through the different churches. Each one ends with, to he that overcometh. Now the eighth time it says here, he that overcometh. Now, they're in glory, so they overcame, obviously. He that overcometh is overcoming, is in that that place, shall inherit all things. Wonderfully, you and I know, it tells us in chapter 12, verse 11, that... It's by the the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony that we have overcome. Not in any effort of our own, the blood of the Lamb, by that and the word of our testimony, we've overcome. John would write in his first epistle, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And and, And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? And those are the overcomers in the picture there. So he that overcometh, that's us. Get a sweatshirt with an O on it, or an OV, or whatever you like. That's us. He that overcometh, he says, remarkably, shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, he shall be my son. That's really interesting. You want to take note of that word son there, huyos. 
Because John, whenever he writes anywhere else, he talks about children, father, he's the word technon, born ones. If you take the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, the only time John uses hoyos is here. Nowhere else in any of his writings. It's almost like he saves it, you know, for this place. Because the hoyos was the, was the heir. The hoyos was the, the son that would inherit. It's a very intimate term. And it's almost like John, it, this one place in all of his writings, because he says they're going to inherit, it was the hoyos that inter- inherited. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, that Christ himself has inherited all things. And then the New Testament tells us we are in Christ and joint heirs. And here he's saying, he's saying very specifically, remarkably, he that overcometh shall inherit all things. Look, uh, I always tell my wife, honey, the only way you're ever going to see real money is if I kick the bucket to get the insurance money. And she tries to be nice to me and say, oh, no, I'd rather have you. <laughs> Some days. But my kids, you know, you want to, the father lays up for the children, not the children, but the parents. You want ultimately to be able to care for them. I have four. I have two sons. And the thing about those two boys is they're the only two young men on the planet that are ever going to hear me say, son, son. And I'm the only man on the planet that's ever going to hear those two say, Abba, Dad, Father. But here, God says, the one who overcomes he knows it's by the blood of the Lamb. is going to inherit all things. And he said, I will be his God. And he will be my son. It is done. It is done. What a remarkable, remarkable picture is placed before us in this scene. And then in verse 8, he says this. But, which is good and bad, you know, but the great contrast, the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. What a contrast to living water which is the second death. But here's this list of others, and and he goes through it. And look, as you go through the list, this is the last time in the Bible we hear about fire, the word fire. The first time in the Bible we hear the word fire is Genesis 19, where Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed by fire and brimstone. We have fire and brimstone here again. And this is the last use of the word fire. 
in the Bible. And it's, it says here, look, as we go through this list of sins, I want you to take note that fearful and unbelieving, they kind of go together. The fear of man, fear of trusting Christ, fear of being a Christian, fear of what other people are going to think, that ties right into unbelieving. You won't trust Christ, you won't believe what he says, you won't receive his forgiveness. There's the serious part of it. Because idolaters and adulterers and sorcerers and liars can be forgiven. That's why we're here this morning. Right? The only sin that's unpardonable is the sin of unbelief. The only sin that can't be forgiven is those who won't believe what the Lord has said. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, who were famous for their sins, says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor the abuser of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul says, all right, this is who you were. That doesn't keep you out of heaven. What keeps you out of heaven is unbelief. Because he says to the Corinthians, such were some of you. This is the way you lived. This is what you did. This is who you were. That doesn't keep you out of heaven. What keeps you out of heaven is refusing God's forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, forget about Calvary Chapel. Forget about religion. It's not about any of that. Do you know Jesus Do you believe in him? Do you believe he took the bullet for you? He went to the gas chamber for you. He was crucified for you. He died in your place. If you will receive that instead of unbelief, all of the other stuff can be washed in the blood of the Lamb. All of the other stuff can be gone. It doesn't say anybody who ever did any of these things is going to hell. That's not what the verse says. It says, but the fearful, the cowardly, and the unbelieving. And he gives a list of what that engenders, the abominable, unnatural sins and so forth. Murderers, they had been slaughtering everybody who wouldn't receive the mark of the beast. Whoremongers, fornicators, any sexual contact outside of marriage. Sorcerers, the pharmacia, the use of drugs and potions idolaters, the whole world had worshipped the image of the beast that the false prophet had set up. Don't think that idolaters are something of the past. All liars, antichrist, false prophet. Peter talks about false teachers, false prophets. All liars, he says, shall have their part in contrast to our part. They shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Look, the great news for us as we look at this, one of the things I think our Father is saying to us is, 
I'm making all things new. Let unbelievers worry about trying to save the present situation. Unbelievers are where, you know, we've got to have the Green New Deal so that uh, we don't cut down the trees. We've got to save the, you know, the spotted owl and the green whale. You know, let the unbelievers try to save this present world. I, and I'm not against nature. I mean, I'm, you know, I love venison. I'm not against nature at all. That's not the, that's not the point of any of this backstrap, by the way. Um, the, point, the point of it is, You and I have something that is going to materialize, that the Lord says, when that happens, the one on the throne says, it's done. It's done. No more sinning, no more temptation, no more falling, no decay, no entropy, nothing wearing anything out. It's new and it remains new. So let the world you're in worry about trying to save this mess. Because in the city we're going to, there are none of the things that trouble this city of brotherly love that we, that we live in. There is no murder. There's no drugs. There's no hatred. No abomination. No lies. Imagine that. The things that trouble a present city today, like the one that we live in, will not be in our new home. There will be none of that to trouble the city that we take residence in. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Well, you need to be patient. <laughs> right now, be patient for the rapture. And after rapture, you've got to be patient through the tribulation. Of course, it's easier to be patient where we're going to be than it will be to be patient on the ground. And then we're going to be patient through the thousand years, but that'll be wonderful. We'll be ruling and reigning with Christ. But ultimately, God takes a deep breath before he goes to verse 9 and tells us about the city. And he says, this is the foundation. This is the way it's going to be. And it's the one on the throne. You have to think about this. I'm making all things new. John, 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 write that down. I want them to be reading it in church. Because these words can't be lost. They're genuine. They're dependable. He says. And he tells us that he himself, it is done. And he says, I know because I'm the Alpha and Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm going to give to those who thirst of the water, uh, of the life, water of life freely, eternally, gratis, undeserved, unearned. And he says that we then will inherit all things because we're overcomers. And he said, and I'm going to be your God. Not you're going to be my slave. You're going to be my servant. We will serve him. tells us in chapter 22. But his perspective, you're going to be my, my heirs, my sons and daughters. It's coming. And understand this. In this city and this new heavens and new earth... There's no idolatry. There's no sexual sin. There's no drugs. There's no alcohol. There's no abuse. There's no orphanages. There's no halfway houses. There's no lawyers. There's no dentists. There's no, you know, just think this is an entirely new thing that's coming. And he tells us 
Put yourself to rest there. It's not, it's not like, I hope this is a sure thing. It's done. It's done. It's done. Amen? Could be around the corner. Let's stand. You're watching the news. Could be this week. You know, the, the interesting thing about watching everything, what about this, what about, we know as Bible students that it will be Israel that will determine what really happens. Not Afghanistan, not China, not it, Israel, you know, and, and Gans, their defense minister, saying Iran's going to have nuclear weapons within eight weeks, uh, one that can detonate it. We can't let that happen in our neighborhood. And then we have Ezekiel 38 39. We're out of here. We're out of here. Pastor Joe said this. How does he know? How do you know what you know? Come on, cut me a break. Jesus is coming. We all know that, right? And it seems like it has to be soon. We know that. Father, we put these things before you, Lord, and we thank you. We review them. We kind of, Lord, grind our way through them to the best we can embrace and understand them, Lord. Even human intellect is not up to the task. So by your spirit, you make these things real to us. We're so thankful. Lord, certainly we pray for unsafe friends and relatives, those around us. Lord, we even pray for our enemies. You said to do that, Lord. Because we can't imagine what this world will be like, Lord, when you extract us and the salt and the light is gone. Lord, we pray that you would set us on fire, that the blessing of those who read and hear and keep these things would be realized in our lives, Lord. There would be a fervor, Lord, in our hearts for the lost world around us. And we commit all of that to you, Lord. We thank you for the hope you've set before us, Lord. And we can genuinely, Lord Jesus, say, come quickly in our hearts. Lord, we pray for anyone here today that may not know you, anybody who's listening somewhere, Lord. um, We pray you draw them this morning here to the altar to give their lives to you, Lord, to be saved, to ask forgiveness. And you're the one who adds to the church daily such as should be saved. We trust you to do that. We pray in your name. Amen.